you have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews chapter 10. There is one under one of the chairs in front of you, and you will find the book of Hebrews on page 1001. The book of Hebrews chapter 10. What would it take for you to reject Christ? What would it take for you to reject Christ? I don't mean necessarily reject Him wholesale, to say he's not real or that you hate him. I mean, what would it take for you to reject him in the sense that you would lose confidence in him or begin to think that he wasn't enough and that you needed something else? Usually we are tempted towards that in one of two ways, either through pleasure or through pain. We feel in pleasure that there is something that we want, but we are not permitted it, because we are disciples of Jesus Christ. At least we're not permitted it the way we want it. Therefore, we think we need something more than Christ. He just isn't enough, and we sin. On the other hand, sometimes we have something we don't want. We have pain in our life, either emotional or physical, but it's unpleasant, and we can't figure out why we should have it as disciples of Christ. And so we begin to believe and live like Christ isn't enough, and so we sin. It's the second avenue of temptation that we find to be the problem behind the letter to the Hebrews and the reason that they are being written to. It is the mid to late 60s AD, making it about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And as we saw last week when we looked at the book of 1 Peter, Christianity at this point is spreading quickly throughout the Roman Empire and causing such a stir that persecution is breaking out against God's people. The same is true for the recipients of this letter that we call Hebrews, and that gives rise to their temptation to reject Jesus. Now, the one thing about this letter to the Hebrews is that while it is associated with Paul, we're fairly confident he didn't write it for a number of reasons. Most prominently, though, is that in chapter 2, the author seems pretty clear that he is a second-generation Christian, that he has heard from Christ from somebody else who saw Christ. That is to say, someone else saw the events firsthand, believed, and now they've passed on the gospel to him. Well, that can't be Paul. Because Paul saw and heard and received the gospel from Christ himself. And so many people have speculated from what we know through the book of Acts and other letters who the author might be. But the reality is we simply don't know and that's okay. What we do know is that the author was inspired by God and that humanly speaking he was well versed in God's word. But more than that he cared deeply for God's people. And not just in some theoretical way but in a way... uh, He didn't just say, you should be living this way as Christians. He cared for them body and soul and wanted them not just to conform outwardly, but inwardly to love Christ as they once did and as he deserves. This is obvious throughout the entirety of the letter. In fact, so much so that it has been observed the letter to the Hebrews really isn't so much a letter as it is a sermon. 
Even either the writer himself at the end of the book says that it is a word of encouragement designed to strengthen a group of Christians suffering for their faith. In chapter 10, he says that they have endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Yet in the midst of that, they have persevered so far, not just hanging on, but living out their faith. So it goes on to say, yet you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your prosperity, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they've not only suffered persecution themselves, they've seen their brothers and sisters suffering persecution and they have aligned themselves publicly with them by going to them, caring for them and supporting them. And yet it is now, it is now that they are beginning to waver in their faith. You see, these Christians are largely from a Jewish background and it is from their fellow Jews, though unbelieving that Christ is the Messiah Jews, that they are receiving the most persecution, the most ridicule, the most uh, detriment to their life and faith. They have apparently deserted the faith of their fathers and therefore, and therefore are suffering for it. Hebrews says they have not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, and yet things are getting intense. And the temptation they have is to say, Jesus is not enough to sustain us through this, therefore, let's go back to Judaism. Let's go back to the, the old system, the old ways that pointed forward to Jesus, so that <coughs> we can kind of blend in among our brothers, and the temptation will go, or the, the persecution rather, and the suffering will go away. The author of Hebrews is thus writing to them and telling them, don't go back. Don't retreat to the old covenant. Those things were just forms and shadows, but Christ is the substance. Over and over and over again throughout this book, he is telling them in every way imaginable, showing them from the old covenant scriptures themselves, this message, Jesus is better. Jesus is is better. Stand firm in your faith, brothers and sisters, because Jesus is better. In order to unpack this message of Hebrews that Jesus is better, we want to look at Hebrews chapter 10. Specifically, we want to look at verses 19 through 25. And in just a minute, I would invite you to follow along as I read those verses. The writer says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of God. <coughs> In these verses, we find one foundational truth and three implications of that truth, thus giving us four things that we want to see this morning, four things to remind us, to reinforce to us, and to encourage us, not just to know and believe, but to live out the reality that Jesus is better. First thing that we want to see is this, the foundational truth that Jesus is better because He provides perfect access to God. 
Jesus provides perfect access to God. Verse 19 begins with the words, Therefore, brothers, and this is one of those key words in biblical studies. As the old adage goes, you may have heard before, if you see a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. In other words, what is, why is it there? It is a transition between what has gone on before and what is about to come next. He is advancing some kind of an argument, and now based upon everything that he said, he is about to tell them what to do. Likewise, here uh, we have a transition from the author of Hebrews about what he has said and what he's about to say. And in fact, it's a major transition building upon what he has said, especially from the, uh, the immediate chapters, but really all the way back to chapter one, laying this foundation of truth and now uh, making the corner where for the rest of the book, the emphasis is going to be on how to live in light of that truth. What do you do with the fact that Jesus is better? And yet he summarizes here at the beginning the truth that he has just been driving home to them that Jesus is better than anything in the Old Covenant. He summarizes that in verses 19 through 20. So far they have heard that they have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and that they have a great high priest over the house of God. So Hebrews is reminding them that Jesus gives them what the old covenant could not, perfect access to God. Now you need to remember that this letter was written before A.D. 70. You know what happened in A.D. 70? Lots of things happened in A.D. 70. But one thing of significance to us in biblical history is that uh, the Roman general Titus destroyed the Hebrew temple. The Jewish temple that uh, had once been the tabernacle and then had become uh, the, the, the temple under Solomon had been destroyed and rebuilt under, um, uh, under Zerubbabel and some other people who come back from the exile and then was, was uh, increased upon by Herod uh, year, hundreds of years before. So now this thing is completely leveled and it never comes back again. But this is happening before that before that great transition in biblical history. And so even while this letter is written, this temple was still standing. The priests were still offering sacrifices daily for sins. Once a year, they offer a sacrifice for the sins of the whole people. Once a year, they go in for the nation, making atonement for their sin, where the presence of God used to dwell in the Holy of Holies. But it was only a temporary atonement. The moment that priest came out, the moment the ceremony was done, the moment the prayer had been offered and the sacrifice before God and atonement had been made, the second he came out from that Holy of Holies, the clock was already ticking to the next year. The atonement wasn't final. It wasn't lasting. And year after year after year, more offerings needed to be made. And Hebrews is asking, why do you want to go back to that? Why do you want to go back to that when Jesus is so much better? Notice what he says again. We have confidence to enter the holy places. In the old covenant, it was only the priests that could enter into the holy places. But now <coughs> every believer can enter into even the most holy place, the very presence of God himself. You are not kept away from the presence of God by curtains and structures and sacrifices and ritual washings as in the Old Covenant, but rather you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Himself. Earlier in chapter 10, Hebrews says the Old Covenant sacrifices were inferior. 
Not that they weren't good, not that they weren't appropriate, not that they shouldn't have been offered. They were a good and gracious gift from God for His people, but they weren't perfect. Why? Because in verses 3 through 4, He says, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But now, Hebrews says, we are in the new covenant. It's not the blood of animals in which we trust, but it's the blood of Jesus. His perfect righteousness, won for us by His life lived and perfect fulfillment of the law, stands behind the shedding of His blood for His people. It's that perfect sacrifice that gives us our access to God. And so just as Matthew recounts, as Jesus died on the cross, the very curtain that would have separated out the holy places in that temple was ripped in two. So also Hebrews says it was the ripping of Christ's own flesh. Like the tearing of the veil, it was through his death on the cross that brought us access to God and opened for us a new and living way. That is a way to God previously unknown because the sacrifice for sins didn't remain dead. Christ's sacrifice was offered. It was offered perfectly, and yet He didn't remain dead, but rather came back to life on the third day never to die again. Therefore, it is by the living way that we are to go to God. And Hebrews brings his offering of assurance to an end by reminding us yet again, in Jesus we don't just have a better sacrifice, we have a better high priest over the house of God. Jesus is not just the sacrifice, he is also the high priest who offers it. In fact, the whole argument from chapters 4 through 9 of this letter is Jesus is a better priest. Even in chapter 1, though, we see hints of this, don't we? What did Pastor Richard read earlier? After making purifications for sin, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We gloss over those words and we miss the significance. What's the significance? The high priest never sat down in the Old Covenant. He never could sit down because there was always more work to be done. There was more sacrifices to be offered. There was more atonement to be made. But Jesus did it once and then he sat down. And thus he could say from the cross, his dying breath, as he offered up his life, it is finished. No more sacrifices, no more offerings, no more separation from all of these things from the holiness of God, but rather perfect access through the perfect offering offered by the perfect high priest. More than that, in chapter 7, Hebrews reminds us that Jesus, not being born from the tribe of Levi, could not have been a priest under the Old Covenant. But that's okay. Because now, because he is not like the priests of Levi, the descendants of Aaron, now he is a, he is a better high priest in the new covenant. He establishes a better covenant with his priesthood because unlike the priests of old who had to first offer a sacrifice for their own sins and then for the sins of the nation, Jesus is sinless. He offers no sacrifice for himself. And unlike the priests of old who could only serve for a short time because they were like all of us, they were humans and they died and they couldn't keep serving. Jesus died as the sacrifice but then he comes back to life never to die again. And so Jesus perfectly stands forever making intercession as our great high priest. And so Hebrews is, is bringing to their mind all that that he has just taught them, chapters 1 through 10, and he says to them, why in the world do you want to give all that up? Why do you want to go back to the old system of the old covenant with the old sacrifices by the old priest when Jesus is so much better? 
here is a better priest who offers his own life as a better sacrifice. Now today, let's just be honest, many of us are not tempted to embrace Judaism, are we? Many of us are not tempted to uh, uproot our lives and go over to the, uh, to the Middle East and find a temple and begin offering animal sacrifices. First of all, we can't because guess what? There's no more temple there. There's no more temple. In fact, they can't even build it back on the same spot because there's a big mosque there now. And that's okay because let's just assume, you know, with some uh, bizarre end times books that we'd find on the, on the shelf that the mosque would be destroyed, the temple would be raised up. Guess what? There's nobody to serve there. There's nobody to serve as high priest because when the temple was destroyed, all of the genealogical records are destroyed. You can go to someone living in Israel today and say, what tribe are you from? They can't answer that question. There's no tribe of Levi anymore. The tribes have all intermarried. There's no one qualified, according to biblical standards, to serve as a priest anymore, to even make the offering if they wanted to. Quite the dilemma, isn't it? Not really, because we have Jesus. It is very much the case that as, as Hebrews is written to his people, as Messiah has already come, it's as if God in his providence said, if you didn't listen to my son, if you didn't get it with his apostles, then get it with this. The temple is done. And he allows the Romans to destroy it. He says, there's no going back that way. Just like, just like he puts the, 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 the angel with the flaming sword outside Eden and says, there's no going back that way. He says, there's no coming to me back to these old sacrifices. You go through my son now, Jesus the Christ. Nevertheless, even though many of us are not tempted to embrace Judaism and a priesthood and sacrifices, many of us, if not all of us, daily face the temptation to rely on our work and not Jesus' finished work to make us right before God. We are tempted to work up something out of our own lives which we believe will make us more acceptable to God, to, to, to more greatly cause Him to love us. That is our temptation, even as Christians. We can be tempted to think that grace got us in, but it's our own works that keep us in and keep God loving us. But Hebrews says to us, just as it said to those first readers, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything we could come up with, any act of obedience we could do, any sacrifice that we could give to God. Jesus is better. More than that, he is perfect in giving us perfect access to God. So that's the reality that Hebrews is advancing. Now the question is, how do we live in light of that? What difference does that make practically in our lives? What difference is that going to make to you this Thursday and Friday and next Sunday? How is your life <coughs> going to be different or at least should be different because Jesus is better? Three things then. Uh, three implications uh, for how our lives should be different. Uh, this is actually point two though, so don't get confused if you're taking notes. First implication, second point. Jesus is better, therefore Jesus enables us to draw near to God. Jesus enables us to draw near to God. Now I want to be a little careful here so that way we avoid confusion on this point. In a few minutes I'm going to talk about the importance of our gathering together as a church. But right now what I want to say is it's not important that we gather together at this church. And you'll know what I mean hopefully in a minute. Simply this, there's nothing special about this building. Do you understand that? I mean, for some of us, it may be special in the sense that it holds memories. It holds great life experiences. Our children were, were, uh, were, were born while we were members here. We were perhaps baptized here. We perhaps came to a saving knowledge of Christ that is here. 
but as a building, as a structure, there is nothing special about this building. It's just a building. It's not God's house. It's not God's temple. This is not a sanctuary. This is a building. And in some ways, God is no more here than he is and he's present at your house or at the school next door or the Applebee's down the street. God is all-present and all-powerful. And I'm saying all that because I don't want us to misunderstand what Hebrews is saying here. It's because of the realities of verses 19 through 21 that he says, Let us then draw near to God with a heart with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus has secured for us perfect access to God. Therefore, we should take advantage of that. We should draw near to God. That's what he's saying. But what I don't want you to misunderstand him to mean is we should draw near in a church service. We should draw near to a building. We should draw near to some formal organized event. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when you wake up in the morning, draw near to God. As you finish getting dressed and are assembling your watches and your rings and your wallets, draw near to God. As you're eating at the breakfast table, draw near to God. As you're sending your, your kids off on the bus, draw near to God. As you're working at your job throughout the day, draw near to God. As you offer thanks for your, your midday meal, draw near to God. As you lay down your head at night before you fall into slumber, draw near to a God who may not ever slumber. Did you see my point that I'm making here? The point is not that we, are, that we have the confidence to gather together at a church service. The point is we have direct, immediate, gracious, perfect access to our Heavenly Father. The God of all things, the one who has saved our very souls. We can do this by faith, remembering that Christ has cleansed our hearts. We are sprinkled clean with, from an evil conscience. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. We are cleansed from our sins. And we have no more guilt before God. Therefore, we have nothing that would keep us from drawing near to God in prayer and worship every moment of our lives. Friends, do you understand that is a privilege and a grace that no old covenant saint ever enjoyed? As, as intimate and as sweet as the Psalms are, the, the relationship that we have now with God through Christ is more than they could have even imagined. Therefore, do not neglect, do not waste that privilege, privilege, but daily draw near to God by faith in Christ, delighting in His presence and pouring out our requests to Him that we might receive the grace that we need. Second implication, third point. Because Jesus is better, Jesus enables us to persevere with hope. Jesus enables us to persevere with hope. Because of the perfect access we have to God in Christ, because He has been our great high priest, Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Now remember who the audience is here. These are Jewish Christians facing difficulty, even persecution for their faith in Christ. And, they, and He is saying to them, well, first they are saying to themselves, let's just go back to Judaism. It'll all be better. We're not going to stop believing in Jesus, but we're going to go back and offer the sacrifices. We're going to keep the food laws. No more bacon and sausage on our, on our pizza and our calzones. You know, we're, going to, we're going to do everything that we're supposed to do as good Jews. And they'll say, oh, uh, they're not really Christian anymore, and therefore we won't persecute them. And Hebrews says, you can't do that. You made a confession of faith. You publicly declared Jesus is Lord. 
to Romans, that means a negative. Caesar isn't Lord. If Jesus is Lord, if he's the eternal Lord, then that means Caesar is just one long line of human kings who would live and die and pass away like everyone else. But for the Jews, it was something far more. By saying Jesus is Lord, you're not just saying he is king. Christians are saying Jesus is Yahweh. He is the God of Israel. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the eternal God, the Holy One, the Lord of glory, the Almighty made flesh who gave up His life for His people. That's what they declared. That's what the Hebrew Christians declared. And the author says you can't go back on that. You have publicly declared that. You have been baptized publicly saying, I am dying to my old life and I am living again to God. He says, don't go back on that confession. It's kind of like a wedding, isn't it? <clears throat> we stand before friends, before relatives, before people that we, we really don't even know that well, but we felt like it was important that they should be invited because our parents knew them and we're saying, sure, whatever, bring them along, free meal. And, and, and we stand before, if it's a Christian wedding, we stand before a, a, a minister and we make promises before God and, bef and before our fellow believers promising to love our spouse. And we not only make that declaration public, but we offer a lasting declaration of those promises, don't we? As we place the, the ring on one another's fingers. Now what is that saying? That's saying every morning when I wake up, I am declaring, I'm reminding myself, you've made promises to a very significant person in your life. Are you going to keep those promises today or are you not? As I go out in the coffee shop to do work, I am making a declaration. I have committed my life to somebody else. I have made public promises to love her in sickness and in health. Therefore, stay away. Don't think of me that way, right? That's only necessary in people that look much more attractive than me. No one's coming after me like that. The point is, though, you've made a declaration and you are reminding yourself of it all the time. You are declaring it to others the same way with them. Publicly, they've said, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. They've been baptized. The whole community has saw they have given their life to Christ. And Hebrews says, don't go back on that confession. That is the confession of your future hope. You have said in dying to yourself now that you will raise again and live with Christ forever on the final day. Do you really believe that or not? If you believe that, then hold fast to that belief, to that confession. Be faithful. Why? Because God himself is faithful. God himself has been faithful to his promises, both to his people and to his son, Christ. Just as Israel believed the promises God made to them through Moses, how much more should we now trust the promises that we have seen not only fulfilled in Christ, but promised to Christ by God about his people, that he would provide for him a people for his own possession. Chapter 11 is full of people. Take this afternoon and read it. It's full of examples of those who believed the promises of God, even though they didn't see them fulfilled in most cases. And frankly, their lives were a lot harder than ours. Slavery, dictatorships, high mortality rates, no penicillin. Have you ever stopped and actually thank God that you live in an age of penicillin? We were talking about painkillers this morning and morphine. Thousands of years of human history, no morphine. You ever just stop God and thank Him for those simple things? Or have, as a people, we've gotten very soft. Even at our worst, we can't compare to some of the people Hebrews mentions, those who were tortured, 
who suffered mocking and flogging and even in chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Yet what does Hebrews say about them? These people were those of whom the world was not worthy. Why? Because they lived as children of the promise. They believed in the promises of God. Therefore, they were the offspring of Abraham, some physically, but all spiritually. They all were people of faith, believing the promises of God. Loved ones, how much more should we live as children of the promise, the offspring of Abraham? For hundreds, thousands of years, God made promises from the very beginning. We saw this morning in Sunday school. From the very beginning of all things, God said, I will send a son who will crush Satan and defeat evil and bring shalom, harmony, spiritual wellness between all of creation and God once again. And generation after generation after generation, though not seeing the fulfillment of the promise, died believing it. And now, almost 2,000 years ago, we know God fulfilled the promise in Jesus Christ. He sent the one who offered the crushing blow to Satan. And he has said, I will come again. How much more we who have seen those promises fulfilled. And not only those, but even the answers to prayers in our own life. How much more should we whether in sickness or distress or financial trouble or natural disaster or even death, how much more should we hold fast to the confession of our faith, living by faith, trusting that He who called us is faithful to His promises? Finally, because we have perfect access to God, we should know that Jesus enables us to encourage one another. Jesus is better and therefore enables us to encourage one another. Earlier we said it wasn't important that we came to this church building. That is true. But now I want to say it is nevertheless important that we gather together as a church. What's the difference? The difference is the building. We could gather out on the lawn. We could gather in the park downtown. We could gather at your house. It doesn't matter where we gather. It's important that we gather together. The Bible says God's people is the church. Not this building, not any other building. It's the people that make up the church. And as unimportant as it is where we meet, it is vitally important that we actually meet. Listen again to what he says, beginning at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful... And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Several months ago, I was listening to a pastor give a talk on modern trends in the church. And one of the modern trends, (coughs) so very young hip churches, is that they don't meet every Sunday. They may meet the first Sunday of the month and then they take the next Sunday, maybe the next two Sundays, sometimes even the rest of the month off and they go do some community project during those times instead of gathering together. Now, I'm not against community projects, but there's a fundamental issue that I have with that view of gathering together for worship. It essentially says it's nothing more than an optional tradition. It's a nice thing to do. It gets us together once a month or once every other week, but it's not all that important. But notice what Hebrews says. 
He says it is our regular gathering together as God's people that is the means by which God is working in and through His people. Every time we gather together as the church, we are able to stir up one another to love and to good works. What effect is that meant to have on us? That we are to be an encouragement to one another. Now that should reframe how we think about our gathering together, shouldn't it? That should reform our attitudes about coming together. We aren't just coming to a class or a service. We aren't just coming with the interest of getting something out of it and then leaving as quickly as we can. We're not just coming to sit and be fed as important as that is. We're coming to invest in one another. I mean, am I wrong? Is that not what Hebrews is saying here? We are coming to encourage one another to be the means by which God himself stirs us up to greater love and good works. So when the going gets tough, my friends, don't don't fall into the trap of saying, I just need some time away. You don't need time away. You need more time with God's people, more time for God to stir you up, more time for God to encourage you through his people. Furthermore, when we do come together, don't just show up hoping something will happen. Well, maybe we'll have a good day today at church. Notice what he says. Consider how to stir up one another. I believe the word consider implies thought. Is that that a safe assumption to have there? That when we gather together, we are to think about how we are going to stir one another up. We are going to think about and come prepared with thoughts on how to encourage one another. If you're a teacher in a class, how are you going to encourage your class? If you're in the class, how are you going to encourage everyone else? How are you going to encourage the teacher? How can you come prepared to encourage parents with young children? How can you come, encouraged, how can you come prepared to encourage people with no children? How can you come prepared to encourage people you don't know really well or people that are visiting with us? How can you come, strangely enough, prepared to encourage your pastors? Now, if you don't have some ideas or some plans along those lines, if you haven't given it some consideration, guess what's going to happen? Nothing. Nothing. You don't fall backwards into prosperity. doesn't work. You don't fall backwards into encouragement from someone other. You've got to have a plan. You've got to work at it. You've got to, you've got to be focused and considering, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? Now, of course, thinking through all those scenarios is going to take more time than I have this morning. But let me give you one simple direction that would apply in any situation with any person or any group of people. If you want to stir someone up, if you want to encourage a brother or sister, make sure whatever you do, whether it's with the words of Scripture, whether it's with the ideas of Scripture, whether it's stopping and praying for them or simply just listening to them, whatever the mechanics of it look like, make sure you do this. Point them to Christ. Point them to to Christ. However you do it, in whatever way, past, present, and future direct their thoughts, their attention, their affections towards the work of Jesus Christ. That's how you stir up God's people to love and good works. That's how you encourage them and build them up as we gather together regularly, not forsaking that meeting as some do. This morning our lives and our circumstances are very different from what we have read in Hebrews, and yet we are in much much need of the same message. Jesus is better. <coughs> in chapters 1 and 2, the author tells us that Jesus speaks a better word than the angels. 
In chapter 3, he is better than Moses. In chapter 4, the rest that Jesus offers is better than the rest provided by Joshua in the promised land. In chapters 5 and 7, Jesus' high priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. In chapter 8, the new covenant over which he presides is better than anything in the old covenant. In chapters 9 through 10, Jesus officiates over a better sanctuary than the tabernacle. He exercises a better ministry and offers a better sacrifice. Over and over and over again, we are left with the unmistakable truth that in every way imaginable, Jesus is better. Therefore, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh Jesus, we come before you this morning desiring our minds and our hearts to be directed towards you with greater awareness of the perfection of your ministry for us, that our hearts might be encouraged, we might live in light of the reality that you are better than anything we could ever come up with. Oh, Father, we pray that you would send your spirit into our hearts to do that very thing, whether through Hebrews, whether through the words and ministry of every Christian here at the end of this service, we pray that you would draw our affections up towards Christ, that we would see his glory and fall so madly in love with him that sin, the temptation to sin, would seem as putrid and dead things to us, things to be shunned and not embraced and loved. Father, we pray that you would do these things for the glory of your name and the good of your people. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.